Sometimes the most memorable stories we carry with us from military service were just the product of the branch of service we were in or the deployment we were on and the crazy stuff that happens when people with a mission and a common cause live in close quarters. And sometimes after our time in the service, we're lucky enough to find careers not too dissimilar to that with missions and with common cause for us to rally around. When we're lucky like that, we can continue to share stories of our shared history and experience and support one another through a bond that goes beyond the workplace. Jones Lang LaSalle and JLL's VetNet Business Resource Group brings you the MidWatch podcast in an effort to tell those stories and share that experience and build connections across generations of veterans at JLL and our broader community. And now the host, of the Midwatch Podcast, Dan Ediger. Hey everybody, this is Dan Ediger coming to you live once again from Metropolitan Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina for our next episode of the Midwatch Jones Lang LaSalle's VetNet podcast where we talk to veterans who are uh, who had service and then ended up here at Jones Lang LaSalle. Really excited to have our, our next guest on here. And um, I'm hoping you'll enjoy the interview too. Uh, Andy Jacobs, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. I absolutely appreciate you uh, you coming on and sharing some uh, some stories. And I figured let's, let's, uh, let's just hop right in it. First things first. Tell us about uh, what you do for Jones Lang LaSalle, kind of what keeps you busy on on a regular day-to-day basis. Tell us a little bit about maybe your family and kind of some hobbies that you have. Go ahead. Yes, sir. So uh, I've been with JLL for two years. I actually started in robotics maintenance, and uh, I just got maybe the most boring promotion, but a promotion nonetheless, <laughs> to uh, a role in asset management. Um, so I have four four different sites and I work remotely. I'm based out of Jacksonville, Florida, uh, and I do asset management, procurement, and um, it sounds probably sounds very boring, but I love it, and uh, it's a lot of work. It definitely keeps me busy. Very cool. Hey, I saw that on your uh, on your LinkedIn profile about robotics, whatever. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about that. What in the heck is Joe's Lang LaSalle doing managing robots? Go. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it's it's an industrial environment doing uh, fulfillment for a large online retailer. And uh, it's a whole semi-automated network of robots interacting using artificial intelligence to help with the, the fulfillment side of it. And it's really, really amazing stuff to see. Well, tell me, tell me this, cause now I'm interested and obviously don't, you know, don't talk about the client specifically or whatever, but so what is the function or let me, let me say this, my experience, I've only been with JLL creeping up on two years now myself. I haven't been with Jones Lang LaSalle full two, two years yet. And my experience has been all in, you know, commercial real estate, construction management and uh, projects and all that kind of thing. That doesn't sound like what you're doing. So what is the function that JLL does that you were f- fulfilling with that? And I understand you've been promoted uh, since then, but what was the function JLL was doing? Yeah, it's all, so it's total facilities management. So maintenance of all base building equipment, as well as conveyance and the robotics side. Uh, it's an in-house 
operation of uh, mostly maintenance technicians and management. Very cool. I will uh, I'll probably bug you with questions after we're done recording. I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll email you repeatedly with questions about that. But really cool. What uh, what about family? Uh, and you said you're in uh, you're in where in Florida? Yeah, I'm in Jacksonville. I moved here from uh, when I was in the military. I lived in New Jersey, and I grew up in upstate New York. Mm -hmm. um, but I moved down here because my folks are down here. I just had a baby right when I got out. So I have a little two-year-old who's just in the sweet spot of being absolutely terrible, <laughs> <laughs> learning to talk and learning how to control his environment. And uh, yep. so me and my wife and the one kid and I got two dogs. Fantastic. What, what kind of hobbies do you have besides this um, kid that you're talking about? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I'm a musician. I make music. Um, I do serious? like uh, bars and restaurants and private parties. Um, I moonlight. Actually, my bosses, if they hear this, will find out about it this way. <laughs> <laughs> I have a secret second uh, job at night. Well, what musical instrument do you play? Are you going to leave us hanging? Yeah, so I play, um, I mostly play acoustic guitar because I mostly play solo and uh, anything else would just be a little weird. But <laughs> I got a little, I've dabbled with the bass guitar and some rhythm electric stuff. I really want to learn to play the piano, but mm -hmm. I got so much going on. It's like, I don't even have time to practice enough what I do now. So that's uh, somewhere down the road, long-term goals. Well, tell me this is, uh, was music musician going to be the thing that nobody would have guessed when I asked you that? I question? hate to tell you that that was absolutely going to be the thing that nobody, <laughs> that nobody would have guessed. We're there. We're there now. So we got to dig in. Um, what, so normally acoustic guitar, you play a little bass. When you play bass guitar, and we're talking about an electric bass, right? Not like an acoustic right. bass, which would be weird. So yeah, now, when, not, when, not anything like upright or classical. When when you play electric bass, do you do you sling it way up high, like almost under your chin, or do you go down by your thigh, like a power rock bass? Where where do you? You know what? You I, I look so corny because I play it exactly where I play my acoustic guitar. That's horrible. <laughs> so it's like right. It's like so boring. There's no character to it, but it's where I'm comfortable. So that's what I do. That is the worst. What uh, if you had to choose way up high or way down low? Which way would you go? I think it's got to be way up high. I don't have. I got like ridiculously long hands, but I have really short arms. <laughs> I can't reach that far down. And, and reach it. That's awesome. And what? What's your go-to if somebody is bugging you and making you, you know, you're at some party and you're not there to play, but somebody messes with you and you finally say, fine, I'll play something. What's your go-to? Uh, what do you mean? Like what, what genre? No, what's your go-to song? Sorry. What if you're, if it's time and somebody says, oh, I've got this crappy acoustic guitar that's tuned up here, play something for us. What is the song uh, that you're going you know to go to? This song, um, I started playing it like four or five years ago on a request. And I don't even like the song that much, but uh, I do a really upbeat uh, version of Folsom Prison Blues by Johnny Cash. Yeah, yeah. And everybody loves it. And uh, I'm so sick of it by now. <laughs> like, I couldn't even imagine being Jimmy Buffett playing Margaritaville now. Oh, my God. He's, like, be 60 years old. Because <laughs> I've been playing this Johnny Cash song for four years, and I'm so sick of it. But I, it, it, people love it, and I like making people happy. So it's, it's just funny. And your, uh, your singing voice, uh, how would you rate your singing voice? These days, I give myself like a 7 out of 10, maybe an 8 out of 10. 
but it's funny because when I started doing this, I started doing it as a teenager, and uh-huh. I swear I don't know why anyone ever booked me because it was <laughs> it was absolutely horrible. I go back and re-listen to recordings, and I'm like mortified to hear them. But uh, but yeah, now I do all right. I do pretty good. I want to ask the following, but I'm not going to officially ask the following question. So you can take this as rhetorical. Can you sing something for us now? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can't afford that. <laughs> would, would have to pay you. <laughs> That's awesome. And can you yodel? Can you yodel? No. And I think my wife would uh, kill me if I tried to take up the hobby. <laughs> I imagine. Good stuff, man. That's all. Oh, and you you almost said it there, but what uh, what genre? What is your what's your go to genre? I hear you on Folsom Prison Blues. Uh, so is it that? Yeah, I do. Um, I do a lot of like um, Zach Brown to Jimmy Buffett style yeah. country. Yeah. Uh, I don't do like uh, real twangy country for the most part, mm-hmm. uh, but I do a lot of that stuff. I do a lot of pop music like John Mayer and uh, guys like that. And I love the classics like Roger Miller and the real yeah. old guys. Yeah. If you can do like a, a more modern take on those, those usually bring down the house. What about what about a, a somewhat obscure song? Ray LaMontagne, Jolene. Have you heard this song? Uh, I'm going to... And not by name, for sure. <laughs> so, and it's really not know. it's not the Dolly Parton Jolene. This is a totally because I know the song. Dolly Parton Jolene, but I'm pretty sure that ain't it. No, this is a completely different Jolene. Check it out, and uh, and let me know what you think. Okay. I'll check it out. I'll send you a private recording or something. Oh, are you serious? <laughs> <laughs> do you have a YouTube channel? Yeah, I do. Uh, I actually have a whole. Uh, a whole website apparatus with YouTube videos and everything. Yeah. Uh, if anybody cares, if anybody's in the Jacksonville, Florida area and getting married, uh, andyjacobsmusic.com. Uh, mention JLL and I'll give you a 5% discount. <laughs> this, this has now become an official advertisement for your side gig. <laughs> hey, I'll take cheap advertising. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, uh, very cool. And, uh, it was a hundred percent fine that we accidentally landed in the thing that nobody would guess about you. This is fantastic. Uh, <laughs> I, pre- I appreciate you sharing that. And, uh, and let's get warmed up a little bit. You uh, served in the air force, correct? Yes, sir. I was a uh, enlisted man in the air force. Fantastic. So tell me about how you got into the air force. Uh, you said you were in upstate New York. So tell me about what, why you landed, pardon the pun in the air force and what you did and just maybe two or three minutes about your Air Force career. Yeah, so um, I grew up in upstate New York, like I said, and uh, we were we were the not, not very well-to-do. We had five kids, single family income, um, and my father didn't make a ton of money. So, I mean, we got by, but we, we never did great. So when I was going into high school, we ended up moving down to Jacksonville, which is how my folks landed down here. Um, and when I graduated high school, I realized if I wanted to get an education or go to college, um, that was pretty much probably going to be about my only way to do it without a whole bunch of student loans or something crazy like that. So, um, you know, like I wasn't really good at many sports. I wrestled a little bit, but, uh, there was no scholarships coming. So I went and talked to recruiters and I talked to all the recruiters and the only one that didn't try to take me out to dinner and sign paperwork the same day. (laughs) It was the Air Force recruiter, and uh, he actually almost even played hard to get, which might have played a role. I don't know. This is getting creepy, but, but go ahead. 
<laughs> yeah, well, you can't even get those guys on the phone, man. Yeah. But I ended up um, in Texas for training for the uh, boot camp and tech school. And I ended up in New Jersey, ironically, because it's so close to where we had just moved from a few years before. Um, and I was an electrician on a large refueling aircraft, the largest refueler the, uh, the Air Force has in its fleet. So a lot of people don't know this, fighter jets and, and all these uh, war fighters, they don't hold that much gas. Mm -hmm. And so anybody trying to get across the ocean or sometimes even across the country, uh, they fly in tandem in formation with tankers. So we had a really cool mission and uh, it was really, I was really proud to be part of it. And uh, you learn a lot because it's very high demanding. There's not a lot of airplanes and there's a lot of customers that need gas. And so um, it was a really cool, a really cool place to be. That's, that sounds pretty cool. What one question I have, and I, I was uh, I was in the Navy, submarining, so zero refueling required, uh, except every one, once every twenty years. But when <laughs> when like a transcontinental or transoceanic flight happens, you, it sounded like you were saying a, a tanker would fly with uh, other aircraft. Is that true? Is that what you is that what you said? Absolutely, yeah. So um, the aircraft I worked on when we would do, we'll say like um, fighter jets, for instance, mm -hmm. you'll have five or six fighter jets sometimes following one uh, one refueler. Okay. And usually like right around every hour, those guys need gas. So it's almost a constant rotation of wow. um, refueling on the way. I was, I was thinking about um, when like bombers were, you know, in the, in the, height of the the wars in the Iraq and the Afghanistan when bombers would leave whatever base it is in the middle of the US and make a basically a 24 hour trip to drop a payload on somebody would the idea be that a string of refueling points would be set up so that a, a refueler would go into orbit around some uh, geographical point and they would make a string of those so the bombers could come in and just top off as they went or how does that work yeah, uh, usually, usually, I mean, it all depends on the mission, but a lot of times if you have operations like that, uh, particularly operations where you got, you know, maybe bombers on standby or something and waiting for orders or whatever, uh, yeah, um, a few miles out, there'll be tankers in the air and just waiting. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Every so often, you know, when fuel gets low, they'll have to circle back and connect, refuel, and then get back on the mission. When you look at this, and we'll, we'll get into just a second here. And let, did you have anything else before I ask you another question, or was that kind of the no, end of this no? Uh, I'm I'm good. Good. Well, I uh, just one more question before we get into a couple of stories that mean the most to you about your uh, your service. One kind of theme that has really started to jump out at me as we've gone through this is going to be episode uh, eleven uh, here of just JLL service members. It what's really started to jump out at me is people from all across the country join the service and go do something that is technologically and adventure uh adventure oriented to like the nth degree something that is is really hard for people who didn't have that opportunity to connect to and i know that sounds like sophomoric because like yeah I'm like no crap that's exactly it's that's why you join is you get to go do something cool that nobody else did but I don't know if I'd ever really thought about it as much. And I hear you saying what you did and you're doing this challenging, uh, logistical, uh, technological job. 
and you're from small town in upstate New York, like when you look at that, do you really step back and say, I did something that was super important and was really cool? And how do you think about that? Or how do you conceptualize it? Well, you know, what's funny. Um, I think about the same things and I, uh, I think about it maybe a little selfishly, but I think about um, with the job I have with JLL, um, the education that I was able to get, and I'm still working on. Um, and really, I mean, everything down to buying a house and getting married, all of that was possible um, because I had the opportunity. I was fortunate to have the opportunity. I'm not colorblind. Um, you know, I'm not uh, flat-footed or like any of those yeah, things that are yeah. just outside of your control. I was fortunate. That's, I looked at it as I was fortunate to be able to um, to take part. And, man, I saw some really cool things. There was a whole lot of uh, embrace the suck, as the uh, mm -hmm. military term goes. Yeah. But there was a lot of cool, cool experiences in there that I never thought I'd get to do and I probably will never get to do again. Yeah, it's almost it's almost cliche to say that, you, that people join to have this kind of an adventure. And, you know, I, I did 20 years and I look back and I, I poo poo it a lot. But like, wow, it really was. I mean, there's no way I would have done the things I did had I not joined the service. And it's just maybe it never really sunk in as much as it is hearing other people talk that way now so i appreciate that and let's get into the part kind of the meat of the purpose of the midwatch which is sharing stories about your service that may or may not be the most dramatic things that you did but are the things that you will absolutely remember 20 years from now 30 years from now you get some grandkids down the road they're sitting on your knee and they say what's this air force thing and they see something on your wall and they ask you about your air force time the story that you're going to tell them do you have a couple examples of those? Yeah, absolutely. I got one that uh, I'm glad you said not dramatic because it's not. But uh, <laughs> it's something I carry. I carried with me that's been really relevant since I've gotten out. And I'll try to be as succinct as possible because it's a long story, but I think I can compress yeah. it. So I was in New Jersey, and we got a phone call one day. I was at work. One of our planes was uh, in North Carolina, and they had a maintenance issue. They couldn't fly. So – they didn't they don't take a whole maintenance package with them when they go so we're kind of troubleshooting over the phone we narrow it down to a couple things could be you know this part or the other part one part i had in stock one part uh was they had one out in california or somewhere so i booked a plane ticket uh, i booked a hotel grabbed the part that i thought it might be and i had them overnight the other part to the hotel no big deal fly down there the same day um and and go to get to work the catch was this was right before, I want to say Hurricane Dorian. One of the hurricanes, uh, there was one that really, really hit North Carolina really devastatingly, and I can't remember which one. Mm -hmm. but, but either way, they were like 24 hours out from um, all of the bodies of water around the base were rising. The storm hadn't even hit yet. You know, it was down south, but with that much rainfall, everything starts raising. So they had about 24 hours before a river near the base was going to kind of flood the end of the runway and the plane wouldn't be able to take off. It would have to sit and weather the storm and kind of see what happens. Um, which, you know, it, it seems like pressure, but you got 24 hours. So, you know, you yeah. see what happens. <laughs> you get, I get there. And the first thing I do is uh, before I even go to the hotel, I go change the part that I had. And that was not a good fix. It was still broke. So, all right, no big deal. I'll go get some sleep. The part will get here in the next, eight hours or whatever we got plenty of time and uh we'll get these guys out of here 
wake up and uh, get alerts from FedEx that the park is at an airport one hour away. But because of rising water and winds and damage that's already occurring from the outer bands of the hurricane, um, they can't get anybody that can drive the park. It's only an hour away, mm-hmm. but there's road closures and everything. Uh, the whole base had been evacuated. There was no more planes except our plane. So the base commander ended up sending a local guy who knew the back roads. It took him almost four hours each way yeah. to drive the back roads and get to the airport, get back with the park. So now we're pressed up for time. Um, I get the part, we put it in, plane's fixed, ready to go. I go tell the pilot, hey, man, you guys are good to go. Well, now they've been up all day, and they got to fly to, like, California. It's a long flight. And they're starting to wonder if they feel comfortable even flying that far. And so now I'm thinking, man, I did all this work for nothing. These guys aren't even going to leave. <laughs> you know, and the plane's going to get stuck here. So I'm listening to them talk about how it's a long flight, and they don't know if they can make it. And they finally look at me and ask me for my opinion. And I think, you guys are too close to the situation. Mm-hmm. I said, you're acting like the only place in the world you can fly right now is to California. Right, right. But you're a 45-minute flight to your home. And you can sleep in your own bed tonight. And it was like their eyes opened. They had tunnel vision. They were too close to the situation. And they couldn't see this easy, obvious solution. And so what I take from that still is you know you're at work sometimes you get too involved on a project and somebody may come to you with a really really good idea that seems so stupid and simple you know what i mean and you might be hesitant to take it for those reasons and it's like don't be too proud to accept advice from a a second set of eyes because that may be where the best advice is going to come from that's pretty good that is a uh that's an excellent story and couldn't be more tangible there's a kind of similar story we were doing some exercise and the culture of submarining was always look for a fresh set of eyes or a fresh opinion. And I was the, the guy who stood up and said, I recommend that we disengage and reposition the ship or whatever the words that I used. And, and everyone comes in. That is clearly the right answer. You know, <laughs> just you're drilling down <laughs> and drilling and pushing and pushing and pushing and say, wait a minute. What's the other option here? This isn't the only option to keep pushing like this. So excellent, excellent stuff. That made me think about that. And fantastic story. Is there, uh, do you have another one? The other, uh, the other thing I wanted, yeah, the other thing I wanted to mention, I don't have a one particular story I'm going to share, but uh, I went for four months with the base honor guard out of mm-hmm. New Jersey. So we covered New York City, upstate New York, uh, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Maryland, that whole like five or six state region. And, um, I did four months, 120 days, and I think at that time I did something like 80 uh, funerals because wow. it's all funeral honors. Yeah. And um, you get to see a different side of of the service because you get to yeah. see the end of service. And I've been at funerals with 300 people in packed cathedrals, and I've been at funerals where, no kidding, it was me, my partner, the preacher, and the funeral director. Yep. Um, and you really get a full scope of, uh, I don't know what's important and, uh, and where you should spend your time, you know, I, and there's no good moral. I don't have a <laughs> moral yeah, yeah. for that story, no, uh, totally, but it's totally like, good. that's the biggest thing. And four years, those four months were the most important to me. Um, and in a weird way, enjoyable, but it was going to a lot of funerals. So 
it sounds weird to say it out loud. You, you have probably, to probably rewarding is what you're might be looking for. It it meant yeah, that's probably the best word for it, right? Um, and it's it's so weird because when you're in the in the service and you're living it, it's sometimes hard to keep a or to understand how important you are and the uniform is to the people that we, we are serving, right? Uh, in the community, you go back to your hometown, you wear a uniform, that's a big deal. You know, it's, this is, you're not just you, you're your community in uniform, right? So I 100% connect with that. Excellent story, Andy, those are, uh, those, those are fantastic. So tell me this, as we get here towards the end, you're, say again, the, the role that you're filling right now at JLO? What's it called? Uh, asset management. What out of that role are you most uh, passionate about? You sound like you you dig your job. You you, you like the the role before this, and now you've got promoted into something else. What do you enjoy most, and what are you passionate about about your job? Um, there's a there's like a customer service component to it because mm -hmm. uh, part of my job that I like the most is um, when the technicians on site come to me and say, "Hey, I need." this this and this to get the job done you know what i mean and i i gotta go out and you know i gotta price shop and there's that cost savings part of my job but being able when i get the tool they needed or the part they needed or some process i can improve by buying this whatever i came up with um it's like i can see it makes these guys job easier right. it makes their day easier and nobody wants to go to work and just get pounded on all the time and not have what they need and the tools they need so i uh, yeah that's that's probably what i like the most is that i'm i'm the guy that can get stuff and um there's a lot of opportunity to improve processes and systems which is what i really excel at you, you can hear it i mean that's it's interesting i didn't know where you'd go if you would have asked me what i would guess that an asset manager was passionate about I don't know if I would have been able to come up with anything, but, <laughs> but, but I, uh, I really appreciate it. You can hear that uh, you really do get a charge out of that. Again, we're coming to the end of the show here. You've already talked about this music career that you have kind of in parallel with your day job. Is there anything else outside of work that, that really gets your blood pressure up? Anything else that you're super passionate about besides your musical career and obviously your family? Oh, yeah. I am a die hard baseball fan really? and uh die hard yankees fan because growing up you know for for the first number of years growing up we didn't have cable mm -hmm. um so you you take what you get but i remember growing up uh in new york that was like the big thing it was the yankee games uh when you know the yankees and mets when they were crossing town or when the red sox were in town it was like <laughs> the whole day stopped <laughs> when seven o'clock yeah. came and the game was on Everybody was gathered around at TV or watching the game. Um, and now, you know, I, well, COVID, I can't yeah. take my kid to baseball games now. <laughs> but before that, <laughs> we were going to minor league games, major league games, college games, any games, because I just love the sport. And it's really the only sport that I get that into. Interesting. Are you just apoplectic about how baseball is kind of fumbling this whole get back to work thing? <laughs> you know, like, what are they doing? Oh, yeah, man. It's like painful to I, I got strong opinions, but I don't want to defame uh, the league or the players association. So I'm gonna save that for a private conversation. Yeah, internalize so, this. Yeah, what's going on right now? Well, fantastic. I really appreciate you uh, taking a few minutes to share uh, some stories and what you're doing now with Jones Lang LaSalle. 
and uh, I know the audience is going to appreciate it too. So hang on the phone with me, even after we hang up here on the uh, on the recording. But hang tight on the well, phone. Well, real quick, can yeah, I go, hijack? Uh, can please. I hijack two more minutes for a soapbox, real quick? Hijack it. Go. All right. Whether you bought into the Montgomery GI Bill when you were in, or if you fall under the post 9/11 GI Bill now that you're out, if the government offered you eighty thousand dollars, you would absolutely take it. But because they tie it to education and putting in the time that it takes to do any sort of self-improvement, too many veterans sit on their benefits and they don't use them. You worked hard for that. And that's how you're going to get ahead now that you're outside the military. And so every single veteran should be taking classes or going to trade school or doing flight school or any of the thousands of things you can do with the GI Bill because that's how you're going to get ahead. And uh, I cannot stand to see people, especially I talk to from the Army and the Marine Corps, that don't even know what their benefits are. Yeah. So if you don't know, find out and get after it. That's my <laughs> that's my soapbox I like to give. Awesome job, man. That was, that was really good. Yeah, you can do, uh, depending on what your disability rating is, what's the, uh, not co-op, what's the word I'm looking for? The, uh, God the additional program where you can get like training stuff beyond even GI bill, even if you burned all your GI bill already. Um, yeah. It's called, I know if you didn't just ask me, I would have knew the name of it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, but uh, if you log into ebenefits.gov yeah. and make an account, then uh, you'll definitely know. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's crazy it, what, what you have access to and, uh, and all that. So fantastic stuff. And you know what, you'll, uh, you'll be proud of us uh, here at, JLL and VetNet and what we've done because our veteran apprenticeship program uh, that I, I put together is VA certified and GI Bill eligible such that when somebody joins our apprenticeship program while they're in for the six months, they can get their BAH uh, to supplement their income. Pretty cool stuff, right? So That is awesome. That's really cool. Yeah, I'd, I'd say that's about the thing I've been most proud of in the in the recent past is working that process, getting it done, and uh, to be a VA, VA certified military apprenticeship program is uh, is a pretty big deal. Well, fantastic discussion, Andy. I can't thank you enough. Again, hang tight while we uh, hang up the phone here, and we'll close out off the air. But please stay connected to us. Excellent show, and for everybody who's listening. Tell your friends and family and coworkers about what we're doing here with the, the Midwatch podcast and really looking forward to the next show. So again, Andy, thanks so much for being on the show. Absolutely. I appreciate you having me. You've been listening to Jones Lang LaSalle's The Midwatch Podcast with Dan Ettinger. Look for us on the web and social media and please share with friends and family. Thanks for your support. Like us wherever you listen to this podcast and stay tuned.